Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, for the past 20 years, the Society du Lambique has been dropping fabulous mixed-cultured Lambic-inspired beers on pallets at the Southern California Homebrewers Festival. In this first part, Andy Gamlin and I discuss how the project started and how the brew day runs. This is a two-parter, so if you have questions, get them in at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. But first, a message from our sponsors. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. All right, and welcome back, everybody. Thank you for listening to those messages from our fine, fine sponsors. Remember, if you interact with them in any way, shape, or form, tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files. It helps. Now, as I had mentioned in the intro, Lambic. It's a thing. And there's some people who are absolutely obsessed about it. And I figured I'd bring on to talk about it. One of the people who, I don't know, has led one of the most coordinated Lambic efforts I've can think of in, in, in the whole country. Andy, why don't you say hi? Sure. So uh, my name is Andy Gamlin. I'm, uh, I've been brewing for over 30 years. I started a homebrew club called Society of Barley Engineers, and that club is nearing on almost 30 years uh, uh, old now. And, um, and uh, at, at some point along the way, we, we decided to get into doing Lambics as a club because uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of work that's required in order to brew lambic style properly, and so we found that doing it together as a group made a lot of sense. And um, we've been doing that for now over 20 years. And somewhere along the way, we decided that why not you know sort of create a brand or a club within a club called Society de Lambic, 
And, uh, you know, what first started out as sort of like, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be funny if we did this, you know, ended up being, okay, now here we are. We've got Society de Lambiquing, sort of a brand name, and, and it's the club within the club. And, and it's uh, been recognized, you know, uh, nationwide for, you know, a lot of the Lambics that we make. And so uh, it's, just, it's just been a lot of fun. I think the place where you guys have gotten a lot of reputation from has been the separate club booth slash bar that you've had at the Southern California Homebrewers Festival, where, I don't know, every time I've ever been, you know, you there's always a line. Yeah, we, you know, we used to have, um, we used to have a, a bar that we had created that had, that had 24 taps on it. And then, you know, when we decided to re-up the bar and make a new bar, of course, we had to we had to do better than that. So we made one that had 26 taps, but rather than having one bar with 26 taps, we split it into two. And so uh, because we were doing this as a club, uh, all the club members ha- had, we had plenty of Lambic on hand and we were able to actually come out and, and field an entire bar of 13 taps with, with different, uh, you know, different fruited Lambics all on tap. And so, so yeah, it's been a lot of fun and, you know, it's been, a great opportunity to, to uh, share something with people that they're not uh, usually able to uh, to find. I will vouch to the fact that those Lambics are fantastic and well worth the standing in line for. So how did you get started as a brewer? You know, I was interested in beer in, in college, but of course never had any time to really get into brewing beer. And then once I had, once I had graduated, I uh, went up and up into Oregon, visited my brother up there, had some time on my hands. And so I did what everybody else did at that time. I bought the Papazian book and just brewed a, a batch of beer and thoroughly enjoyed it. And so decided I was going to go do that. And I think what happened along the way is, well, I at the time I was learning from books and, and just from wherever I could. And I made all kinds of mistakes. And it was it took me a, a very long time to, to start making really good beer. And And, and, and then what happened was, I would once I was starting to make what I considered to be good beer, I would invite people over and I would teach them how to make beer. And then the funny thing is their first beer would come out really good. <laughs> it didn't seem fair. All the struggles that I went through to, to, to start making good beer and, and for them to make good beer on the first on the first go round. But when I started thinking about it, I was thinking about why that was. And I was thinking it was because, you know, we're able to, to share information and um, and so that's sort of the genesis of the club, Society of Barley Engineers. It was a club that was founded uh, around the principle that we, if we could share with each other, you know, all of the ideas and also the, the homebrews that we make, that we could all learn how to make better beer. The jokey meme these days is we live in a society, right? Honestly, that's one of the big reasons why I tell people, even people who are loners and introverts and whatnot, which is a shockingly high percentage of homebrewers, that one of the best ways that you can ever learn how to make better beer is to go join other people making beer. 100% agree with that. There's a plug for getting involved in your local homebrew club. Now, how did you, you're you're doing beer, you're becoming proficient at making beer, but where did the Lambic love start? One of the things that really drew me to, to craft beer was all the history behind it. If you look at a lot of these different beer styles, they all came out of they all have historical roots and oftentimes people were brewing with what they had or they brewed with, um, you know, ingredients that were available or if there were, there were certain uh, tax laws in some place that favored one style of beer, then they would brew that style of beer or if they had water that, that favored one thing. And so 
And so I started to get real involved and in, in really, really um, keen on the history behind things and all of the different styles. And of course, a lot of the Belgium styles were, were, really, were really of interest because they're, they were so unique and Lambic just being one of them. And I think part of the draw was because, you know, uh, at the time there wasn't really a lot of uh, choices for even getting good commercial Lambics around. And so it took a little while. You, know, you have to go look for them and, and, and find them. And, and so there was a it was sort of a very exotic thing. And so wouldn't it be cool if you could brew this exotic thing, you know, and share it with people that didn't had never had it before, never had the opportunity to, to, to have it. And so that's sort of how we kind of got interested in it. Then it just sort of blossomed and, and, and took off and everyone got interested in it. We sort of built the club uh, or sort of built the, the brew sessions around it because it made it a lot easier for us to do it as a as a group than for you to individually try to figure out how to mostly getting all the microbes together and things like that that you need to actually get the uh, the quality that you're looking for. Okay, and so that's actually a good segue into how did this get started? I mean, it sounds like you had an interest in Lambic and what just talking amongst your fellow members of the club, it just became a thing. Yeah, so other other brewers like um, Bill Sobieski, um, who's with Wild Barrel now, and, and a few of the other brewers that were interested in it, and so we uh, decided to why not why don't we brew it together? It made it a little bit easier to you know to 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 brew uh, and handle some of the things that we needed to do with like the uh, like the uh, you know the microbes. So tell me about those first group sessions, like. How did how did that go initially? Because I know this has grown over time, but can you give me a sense of like what it was like when you first started? So in in some ways, it was the same as, but just on a smaller scale. People would bring their brew systems over to one location. We would brew there. We would take um, all of the wort and you know combine it together into into uh, um, barrels or totes, you know, for for fermentation. And uh, then we would pitch. We would pitch all the uh, microbes that that we were going to use to ferment with. So in some senses, it wasn't really um, that different than what we're doing today, except we're on a larger scale. And now we we bring all the uh, we we kind of order all the all the grains uh, at a time. We make so we can make sure we we don't have any substitutions and things like that. We also now. I have um, pounds and pounds of hops up in my attic that are just being aged. In the old days, we used to just try to get hops that we had old, old hops that we had around to make use of. And now we, we're just a little bit more, I don't know, deliberate about, about what we're doing. Uh, the microbes, we, we'll, we now um, are a little bit more deliberate about that as well. We'll actually, we're actually propagate our house culture and we use that from year to year. So that there's a, a a part of the of the character that you get from it that's from the house culture, and then on top of that we add uh, Britannomyces because it doesn't seem like you can have uh, too much uh, Britannomyces Brett L in the uh, in the fermentations that we're doing. So Brett's important in a lamp because it does so much cleanup work. Yes, it does, and it gives it some of that that really character characteristic funky flavor that people associate with uh, with a uh, quality lambic. Let's back up because we did. We do need to talk about one thing. You said, okay, you're aging hops up in your attic. How hot does it get in your attic? Well, it gets pretty hot up there. So yeah, this stuff will. Um, I think in the summer times it will get 
well over a hundred in the attic. So the hops are up there. They're aging. Even using uh, pelletized hops, which normally you'd think you'd want to use whole leaf hops so that you can maximize the surface area to make sure the hops are, are fully aged. But using pellet hops, if you store them for, you know, a long period of time, though, in, in warm temperatures, they will, they will age quite well. Lore the slash reasoning behind the aged hops is we want some of the antimicrobial behavior of the hops, but we don't really want the flavor and a lot of the bitterness, right? So intentionally aging to reduce a lot of the overt hop characters. That's exactly it. So you're trying to um, reduce the bitterness to, 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 to zero, essentially. You don't want the bitterness from the hops. Bitter, bitterness and sourness don't do well together because what they tend to stack on top of each other in terms of your senses. And so you'll think something's, you could think that something's overly sour uh, or overly bitter if you combine the two together. But you do want the antimicrobial properties. And the reason, the reasoning behind that is to, is to balance the sourness coming from uh, the lactic acid with um, the fermentation that will happen from the yeast, you know, namely the Saccharomyces or Britannomyces. Right. Because you have what, I mean, we have, well, I mean, there are a number of players, but the main ones are Saccharomyces, everybody's favorite, Lactobacillus, everybody's kettle sour and Berliner favorite, Pediococcus damnosus, which is still one of my favorite things to say. And then you also have Britannomyces. So those are kind of the big players in the Lambic world with a whole bunch of other little players around. And I think the challenge with Lambic brewing is balancing out how those cultures work together, right? Yeah, I think the typical thing that you'll get if you're a if you're beginning to make lambics and you you just let them go. I've had I've tried a lot of lambics where they're overly sour. Mm-hmm. And when we say something is sour, you know, we're not we're not thinking about it being, you know, pucker puckeringly tart. You know, so I think if you go back and you look at a, a lot of the the Belgian classics for lambics, you'll note that there is sourness there, but you also note that that it's, you know, I, I guess I could use the word restrained, restrained in in comparison to other sour things that you might you might taste in life. Well, and then that also goes back to the the sort of the classic ongoing debate about lactic versus acetic acid, that bright yogurty sort of acidity versus vinegar. Right. And so the acetic acid can be a, so we stay away from acetic acid in, in our lambic production. And I think most lambic brewers try to do that, but it's, um, it's a very much a, uh, an important part of other styles like, mm-hmm. you know, Flanders styles and, and acetic, uh, sourness tends to be sharper than, uh, uh, lactic sourness. And so you need, you need very little of it. And so sometimes, you know, I think you can have, a small amount of, of acetic flavor to it. If it's either right at or very much below the, uh, the threshold, it can add complexity. I wouldn't say it's necessarily, you know, a bad thing, but you do have to be very careful with it. And, and this is one of those things where when we're, when we're fermenting our lambics and when we're storing them, we try to make sure that there's as little uh, contact with oxygen as possible. And that's one of the things that helps to keep uh, acetic acid out of your out of your lambic. Oxygen control is very very important to the long term aging. <laughs> that's right. And so you know, just things like you know not having barrels half filled and you know things like that. That you know, making sure that you've got a good seal on them when they're 
you know, when they're being stored or fermenting, you know, these things are, these things are, uh, are, are important. And also if you then, once you distribute them and then, and keg them, making sure that you have a good, you know, CO2 layer on top of the keg so that you don't, it doesn't go, doesn't go dry and get exposed to, to, to oxygen. That's something I think is kind of funny about how a lot of brewers approach any sort of mixed culture fermentation is that there seems to be an assumption from the ones who aren't necessarily doing it top notch that because it's mixed culture, like a lambic would be, that you can be a little more sloppy. And in truth, I think if you're trying to produce just like trying to produce a world-class Pilsner, if you're trying to produce a world-class mixed culture beer, you still have to be on top of your game in terms of your practices and keeping things moving as appropriate. Yes, I think it's it. It may be it may be a, a little bit of a different thing that you you know the things that you're watching out for are more like oxygen. You know you, those those kinds of things. And you know, I'm not going to say you're not going to say you don't want cleanliness around everything that you're doing uh, because you do. But you know the biggest thing that you can, that can go wrong with your lambic is that is that it gets exposed to oxygen and it becomes, you know, vinegar. Honestly, it's happened to us once before. You know, in the 20 years that we've done this, we actually had one barrel where it went acetic. It doesn't happen often if you're if you're cautious uh, about how you do things. So I'm guessing if you had one barrel go acetic, then you guys have fish and chips fodder for the rest of your lives. There's only so much salad dressing that you can <laughs> that you can use, so in the end that that you just end up dumping that. That's just what happens. Let's actually dig into the mechanics of the brew day then, because these days you're doing a group order. And just to give people an idea of a scale, when you guys are doing your brew day, how many gallons of, of wort are you producing? So we're targeting um, 350 gallons, somewhere around there. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, yeah, so it's a decent thing. And so what we've done is we've people bring their brew systems out. And there'll even be some people that will just bring out kettles just to heat up water. Because what happens is if you have hot water available, you can run, you know, three back-to-back, you know, mashes on your brew system fairly, fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have people that are bringing their brew systems out and brewing on them. But we also have other people that are sort of, you know, supporting, you know, doing things like you know, hot water or preparing the barrels or chilling the chilling the wort, uh, those types of things. So. You can assign jobs out to different people when you have other people, and and it works out well because not everybody is able to cart over their brew system. They might be able to cart out a propane burner in a kettle. Yeah, I always remind people on this podcast is there's never a th- a thing as too much hot water on a brew day. Some people have a um a second system that's more portable, that's just more basic, and they'll bring that out to the to, you know so that's a little bit more portable, easier for them to bring out, mm-hmm. and they bring that out. And the other thing that we've started doing is we've said, we actually started this even before COVID. We said, um, if your system isn't portable and you want to brew at home on the same day, you, you can pick up the ingredients ahead of time. You can brew and then you just transport your wort over to, you know, to where the brew session is. And so we typically had about 10% of the, you know, wort that we collect is coming from people brewing you know, brewing at home and then, and then bringing it over. So we're just trying to be flexible for different people. And actually during COVID, we didn't know how long this was going to last. And so we thought, you know, we sort of delayed our, our Lambic brew session. And then it got to the point where, 
this is going to go on for quite a while and we need to brew because we need to empty these barrels out and make sure that house culture keeps going and, you know, all the things that we're and, and also to be prepared for future festivals. And so during COVID, everybody brewed at home and they brought their wort and then just we, we put it into the barrels. So we did it entirely from remote brewing during COVID. You're doing 350 gallons on on one of these days or 350 gallons spread out across San Diego County. Or actually, you all are all in North County, right? Yeah, it's mostly uh, on site. Like I said, it's 90% of it's on site. How many different brew teams? Oh, uh, yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, 10 or 12 different, um, you know, brew teams, different size, you know, kettles and, you know, brewing back to back batches. And then it sounds like you guys have a standard recipe. Everybody's brewing the same base wort. Everybody's brewing the same base wort. And so, uh, you know, um, we have the standard recipe. We've got all the grains provided, all the hops provided, the microbes. The microbes we have, we have um, our house culture, but then we also have, um, uh, we're growing up. I mentioned we grow up uh, additional Brett, Brett L to add to it. And we'll have members you know, we'll split up uh, vials of that and have members grow those up, you know, ahead of time. So when they show up, they bring that there. So that's ready to go. Oh, and Saccharomyces. And we get some, we, we bring in some fresh Saccharomyces as well. Well, and so the house culture, where's that from and who maintains that? So that's maintained in the barrels. So the barrels that we have are always filled with something. And so what we're doing, I, I want to say with something, they're always filled with Lambic. And so what we do is we, We'll brew and we're brewing 350 gallons, you know, and we'll, we'll fill up the wood barrels and we have a big tote, a big plastic tote that we fill up also. We'll take uh, the cultures from the barrels and we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that some gets into the tote. So we basically take out dregs from the, uh, from the barrels and we split them between all the different fermenters that we have. Then when we get to the point where we're going to, to harvest it, which is so we usually brew in in March timeframe, and then we harvest in October timeframe. And when we harvest it, then what we do is we we distribute the lambic to the different members, and we take some of the lambic uh, that was in the tote, and we we reserve some of that and put that back into the barrels, and then those sit until until brew day. And then on brew day, when, you know, we'll distribute that when we fill up the other barrel. So it's sort of, there's some of it that is, that just keeps going. I, I guess the idea is that the barrels, we keep the barrels wet. We don't take the cultures out and then try to, you know, grow them, propagate them or do different things with them. We, the cultures live in the barrels. And at the same time though, I mean, you guys aren't really doing like what people would think of as like a Solera process. You're just, it's always a new batch of wort that's going into the barrels. It's just you're keeping everything there until it's time, right? Well, it's funny you should mention that about a Solera because we actually have one barrel that's a, um, I think it's a eight or eight or nine gallon barrel, a smaller barrel, and uh, that one we do do a Solera in it. And so we basically what we do is we have that Solera, and we'll take that barrel, and the day before our lambic brew session. I'll put, I'll take the barrel and I'll stick it in a chest freezer and chill it all down. So it's kind of at a reasonable drinking temperature. And we have cask lambic that's available, <laughs> which where else can you get cask lambic? Cask lambic that's available for people that are spending the whole day brewing and brewing real, 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 real hard, doing hard work. 
just how big of a cask are we talking about here? Because that's, I mean, a full-size barrel is a beast. Yeah, so this is only like an eight-gallon barrel. So it's something that it's, it's, uh, it's still heavy when it's filled. And we use a, so we set up a gravity feed. So we take the barrel, you know, we'll, we'll chill it down a little bit so that it's more like a cellar temperature. And then we'll put it up on a, a platform and then um, we'll use a gravity feed so that you can actually, we've got a siphon, gravity siphon going so you can actually fill up a glass and try the uh, cast lambic. Awesome. I mean, that kind of reminds me of the time I was at uh, Cantillon and they had fresh made Faro. Wow. That's a hell of a treat. Thinking back, so you got this house culture going. Have you guys ever like attempted to plated, reserved, banked, anything just in case, God forbid, something happens? Or No, no, we haven't. Um, we have multiple barrels. So, you know, I guess if something happened to one of the barrels, we would do probably the same thing that the Lambic producers are doing and, and, uh, and nix that barrel. So um, that hasn't been a, an issue. That hasn't happened. The funny thing is that there's always this, there's always this thought when you um, when you have your lambic of, and it's fermenting away, and you're letting it go, and you're and you're letting it go, and you're aging it, and you're going to have, you know, thirty or forty people show up to distribute this among all the different members. You start getting a little bit nervous about, you know, is it going to go bad? Is it going to be? Is it going to be something bad? And we're going to have to go. It's going to be an oh no moment, you know, for everybody that shows up. But it's one of those things where it's a trade off. Do you open it up and sample it and provide more opportunities for oxygen, or do you trust in the lambic cultures to do their thing and you know have the the surprise about how good it is when you when you when you finally cask it? And, and we've We've gone down the latter approach. So we've said that we're not going to open up the barrels and, and sample things and along the way. We're going to just let it go finish up. And then the first time it gets sampled is really when we get to harvest day. Talking about the house culture, did you guys start with a like a pure strain? Or was this like one of those things where it was like, here, we got a bunch of Lambics together, and we'll take the bottle drugs in there and throw that together. And then over time, it's just built up into something or? It's sort of built up and taken on its own, you know, a uh, uh, character. I think um, when, and this would be what I would recommend with people that are, that are just starting out to and want to do this at home it's kind of hard to to build this all up yourself. And especially if you're just doing a five gallon batch, it's a, you know, it's a lot of work to, 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 to get down to it. And so if you just get one of the, one of the blends, that's a good place to just start with. But you have to know um, that if you get those blends that you can't just grow them up because you have a blend of things that are going to grow at different rates and, and you're not going to end up with the, uh, the character that you're looking, that you're looking for. Yeah, various things will dominate over time. Yeah. And so um, we have been, you know, typically adding fresh Saccharomyces to make sure that the fermentation kicks off at a reasonable pace. And, and it turns out that there's sort of a little bit of a balance to do there as well, because you um, you want the, you want the um, Saccharomyces to, you know, take off and you want your fermentation to, to start up, but you want to make sure that there's enough residual sugars there or starches for uh, the other microbes to to feed on if you go overboard with the saccharomyces then you could end up with a you know a, a cleaner sour beer and if you don't have enough in there 
then you could end up with a beer that's either over overly lactic or has some other characters to it. And do you have a preferred yeast that you add every year as a clean yeast? Actually, uh, it doesn't seem to really make a whole difference. I mean, we've even added we even added a Hefeweizen yeast one year, hmm. and you would think, oh, you're going to end up with all these banana flavors, and but they're not. It doesn't turn out to be. And I think maybe you mentioned earlier about Britannomyces cleaning things up. It really does uh, do that, and so maybe that's the reason why it's not it's not as important. Kind of funny to think of Brett as a cleaning agent. In a way, but it really does in these beers. Because when I've done uh, some project lambits on my own in the past, I've, I've admittedly just used like oh one US05 1056 as as my starter yeast. Yeah. Uh, eventually, to your point, a lot of those characters sort of become subdued or less dominant. So whatever, use what you have on hand. Yeah, I think that I would say that. And you know, each each one of these each one of these um, beer styles, they all have certain things that. Where you know this is really important about making this beer. If you don't do this right, then then you know you're not going to end up with that style correctly. Like you had mentioned in your discussion with our homebrew club about making the saisons, about you know those need to be dry beers. And and, and if you don't make a beer that ends up being a, a dry beer as a saison, then you're sort of you're sort of missing the mark. You've made something vaguely Belgian. Yeah, and so with uh, you know the lambic beers. I don't want to say things aren't important, but the most important thing is really the the microbes that you have, and it's that's kind of what's the dominant uh, in the flavor profile. And it's less important some of the other things like the ingredients and things like that. You know, not that I'm going to say they're not they're they're not important, but the the thing that's really driving the character of that style is, is the uh, the microbes and how they how they ferment out during the fermentation process. All right. That sounds good. But of course, we'll get into more of those details in part two of this, where I think we're going to have to come back and cover all like, you know, how you do the fermentation and the barrel blending and, and getting your flavors in. But before we leave that, you'd mentioned, okay, everybody's working from a shared recipe and shared cultures and all that. One thing we didn't talk about is there's a lot of talk about like mash schedules around Lambic and particularly like very complicated turbid mash schedules in order to generate excess kind of starch that's going to be held over for the microbes. Do you do that or are you doing kind of a more straightforward mash regime? We do, we do think that way. And so we do things that you wouldn't normally do when you're a, you're, you're making a a sort of a a standard beer. Mm -hmm. So we, we actually mash at, for one, we mash at a high temperature. So we're somewhere in the 158 uh, degrees range. And so, you know, that's going to drive, more um, unfermentable sugars or harder to ferment sugars. And then the other thing that we do is we will sparge at 190. And so, you know, everybody's te- everybody tells you don't sparge above 170 because you were going to get tannins and, and, and all this into it. But it sort of drives a little bit a higher starch profile into the beer. And just a, your friendly neighborhood reminder that tannin extraction is not temperature dependent or pressure dependent. It's pH dependent. Well, there you go. So maybe that's uh, maybe that's the real answer to that. You know, we are using sort of a traditional. We're using uh, unmalted wheat, which is traditional at at a percentage of around thirty percent, which is also traditional. And so you pick up a lot of starches from using that. Right, and then when you see like turbid mash schedules that people have dug out of either historical archives or yeah. other things, you get some very weird steps. But you guys are still just kind of keeping it relatively straightforward. But yeah. 
We're not doing that. And, you know, it's a funny thing is when you talk to people that are brewing Lambic, most of the people have a way of, of doing it. I mean, you go out to Belgium and you talk to Cantillon, they'll tell you, you know, how they're doing it. But it doesn't mean that that's necessarily the only way to do it. And different people will do it different ways. But when you find something that's working for you, then you don't necessarily need to go look for a different way to, to, to do it. And so I wouldn't tell people that, that they shouldn't do that. But I could tell you that we don't do that. And, and I, I think there's other areas that you could concentrate on, you know, that might be more important. I suspect a lot of it's going to be around microbiology and fermentation. Right. Now, before we leave the brew day, you already mentioned the aged hops. And I'm guessing you said 30% um, unmalted wheat. Is the other 70% Pilsner or just? We use a very uh, light two-row. Okay. And so we're not actually using Pilsner. Mm-hmm. I think you can use Pilsner and, and that might give you a little bit more of a, a silky a silky f- a flavor in your in your Lambic. It just depends on, on what you're going for. All right. And then brew day boil, is this a long boil or is it just a short boil? You, again, because you see some of those traditionally like very long boils, but I assume you guys aren't doing that. No, we don't need a very a very long boil. The main thing is to make sure that, you know, the hops are are in the boil, you, you can, you, you boil them. And so we typically do a one hour boil. I think you could end up doing even less if you wanted to. What sort of ABV, what sort of gravity are we talking about for this work when you guys get to the end of the boil? I think the gravity is about 1053, but you know, everybody's brew system has a different efficiency to it. And so we end up with some that are, that are higher and some that are lower and then you sort of, it sort of balances out to that. And I think it's okay. I mean, I guess you can, there's two ways you can do it. You can either have everyone adjust the recipe per their efficiency, or you can just figure that it's going to average out if you, if you pick the middle of the road for efficiency when you design the recipe. Yeah. And if you're talking about 12 to 15 different brew systems doing this, and particularly since I guess you have a couple of fairly large systems in the mix. Yeah, you, you, you'll get to a certain level of consistency. You know, it's actually not as important as you would think. We One year we did a, uh, we did sort of, this is many years, many maybe 15 or 18 years ago, we did a a, a mash that was we concentrated. And we thought, well, we'll do a concentrated one and then we'll just add water mm-hmm. later. And we ended up putting it into the fermenter that way. And we ended up fermenting it all the way out and then trying it that way. And it it didn't have the perception of having, you know, a higher level of alcohol. And it was, I mean, it was good just the way it was. We ended up not adding adding any water to it because we didn't want to dilute other other flavors that we had. Extra strength limbic. Yeah. So it was just, it was kind of odd because a, a lot of other beer styles, when you have um, higher alcohol, as you, as you add alcohol, you start changing, dramatically changing the flavor profile. And this didn't seem to be the case for Lambic. So I would say it was a little bit more forgiving on that end. Well, I mean, let's face it, with the microbial stuff that we have going on, there's a lot more flavor flying around in a Lambic than necessarily in just a clean ferment. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. To close off brew day, you have all these people either brewing on site, the majority of them, or people bringing you wort. And then at the end of the brew day, when you've got all this wort, it's all getting mixed together in, into the barrels there, right? You're not, you're not having people go off in different directions and fermenting at their houses and bringing back. No, um, we we we'll blend it all together as best we can, and so we, they sort of everything blends together, and you sort of you have a homogeneous wort that you're fermenting. 
but even with a homogenous wart, you'll end up, you know, you'll have different barrels. And when we do get to the day where we're, where we're harvesting and we're sam- sampling it, you can taste the differences between the different barrels. And, and it's, it's, it's quite interesting, you know, same, basically we split the house cultures and, and the, all the microbes that we add added, you know, as evenly as we could. And we, as evenly as we could, we have the same wort fermenting. They're sitting right next to each other. So they should be pretty close to the same temperature. And then when you sample them at the end, there are some differences. <laughs> and all that will be in part two, when we're going to cover fermentation, the barreling, and how you guys actually do the blend and get everything ready for service. Sounds fantastic. Boys and girls, brewers and brewsters, sit tight. In two weeks, we'll be back with the episode that covers the latter half of the Lambeck, and particularly how you get all these wonderful flavors so that you too could run a 13-tap bar full of wonderful, funky, slightly acidic Belgian goodness. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this first part exploration of how the Society du Lambique runs their brew day. In the next episode, we'll break down their fermentation, blending, and flavoring processes. Need something clarified? Send in a question at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us on Twitter at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the HA, Amazon, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and punching a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which is changing right now. Don't forget, we're going to find a good cause. If you have one in your mind, send it along. Until next time, remember the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. The AHA wants to remind you that the Great American Beer Festival returns to Denver this October 6th through 8th. And if you want pre-sale access to the hottest beer festival in the U.S., you're going to need to be an AHA member. June 28th is the deadline to join the American Homebrewers Association to receive a pre-sale code, a $10 discount on all general session tickets, access to the members-only Saturday afternoon tickets, and first access to paired tickets. Don't delay. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to get access to the hottest beer fest in the U.S.